Peter Casey is one of Australia's most versatile musical directors, having established a career spanning the genres of musical theatre, arena presentations, symphonic concerts, orchestration, television and recording. Over several decades, he's been at the helm for many commercial musical theatre productions, guiding, nurturing and supporting talent as they navigate the storytelling required by this demanding genre. Mr Casey has been musical director on a vast array of shows that have covered different styles and the work of many composers. These include Les Miserables, The Sound of Music, The King and I, Evita, The Producers, Chicago, Smokey Joe's Cafe, The Wizard of Oz, Company, Song and Dance, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Anything Goes and Annie. He has been an orchestrator and arranger for many Australian artists including Anthony Warlow, Deborah Byrne, Olivia Newton-John, David Hobson and John Farnham. Casey has worked extensively in Southeast Asia, co-composing and orchestrating several musical productions, operas and recordings in Singapore and Korea. He was co-composer and orchestrator for the Korean musical opera The Last Empress, which toured to London, Los Angeles and New York, and the orchestrator and conductor for the Korean film Typhoon. He has been guest conductor and orchestrator for the West Australian Symphony, Adelaide Symphony and Queensland Symphony Orchestras. In 2018, Peter Casey was named on the Queen's Birthday Honours List as a member of the Order of Australia, AM, in recognition of 40 years of service to the musical theatre industry. Well, that's different then, because you're going to be there. But we'll see each other on the show. But I suppose, yeah, even though you're working together, you will arrive at a certain time and you've got the orchestra to attend to. Mm. They've Mm. got their preparation of their performance to attend mm. to so mm. you don't really see each other except the two and a half hours of running time of the show but you're in the that's pit right. and they're on stage that's right that's right oh i do go and, and i do the rounds though before i start a show what i call the rounds just to touch base yep. i guess just to see everybody to say. i guess that's really important to <clears throat> yeah hook up that link I'm a that human, you both organic, have organic. <laughs> Yeah. Remember me? Said, yes. Said, oh, that's right. You're waving your arms about there wildly. <laughs> All that bloke down there in the pit. I know. I know. It's just funny. I must say, you can come again. Uh, you're the only guest that has ever bought croissants. Oh, so thank, thank you. you for that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, uh, should I tell a story? About, oh, please do. Uh, you. It's a funny story because when we presented Lembers Are Up, the actual first one with um, Cameron McIntosh and Trevor Nunn, I was delighted to work with Trevor and Cameron. And uh, Claude Michel Schoenberg, the composer and lyricist Alain Boublil, we were at the audition table ready to start at 10 a.m. because of a busy, busy time. There were a lot of people out the front. And... I always have a coffee to get ready for the event. And uh, as we start, the first person coming in was a a dear friend who's an agent now, Ian White. And he walked in with a whole tray full of croissants and put them down in front of us. And Claude Michel says, oh, what a great idea. Immediately he was cast as Jean Prouvaire, the baker. (laughs) He'd really got a head in, so he's a very clever boy to do that. How, how important is it for a performer to, well, obviously it's very important, to make an impression in an audition, but do you find performers come in and they make impressions in, in yes, different ways? Yes, they do. They do in many different ways. And uh, fortunately enough, I, I've been privileged enough to spend nearly uh, 40 years in this industry of, of taking auditions, and, and I was able to watch as I do watch someone come in and by just the body language and the way they would walk in, 
you knew either they were petrified or they were ready to sing up a storm or they were ready to actually get too close to the, the table. And I said, don't get too close to the table, it's too close, we can't hear you. Get back up near the piano and of course, uh, as I keep telling them, make sure the accompanist is your best friend. And a lot of people remembered that and they would go to Michael Tyke or whoever were the, the greatest. Michael is just a fabulous uh, audition accompanist. Yeah. And MD in his own right. And uh, they would they would arrive and be prepared uh, to give the best performance they could in that three minutes. It's a tough one, and uh, and then also by the way, men and women would walk out of the room. Also, they would actually telegraph how they felt or how they thought the audition went. But uh, many many times, I would get out from behind that table and go to the piano with them and and greet them and make them feel comfortable. It's a bizarre experience, isn't it? Because you have to be authentic in a very inauthentic yes. uh, forum. Yes, you do. Yeah. You and do. Mm. People, some people audition better than others. They do. Yeah, absolutely right. They'll they'll come in. As I said, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a great story I may have said to you about uh, a chorus line. The first time we present a chorus line with Bayok Lee, and I know you just recently produced it, which yep. was a fabulous show. Thank you. Say. Thank you very much. It was really fabulous. And uh, Bayok sitting next to me in the... Bayok Lee, the director. And, Who was uh, in the original Broadway cast too, that, wasn't she? That's Playing right. Connie Wong. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And uh, she sat with me. It was in the Seymour Theatre where your chorus line was presented. In the York. Yeah. The York, that's yeah. right. The York. And uh, people coming in auditioning. And of course, there were the first... First thing to do before they sang, they had to do a time step and a double pirouette. That was the two two items. Oh, before anything else. Yep, before anything else, and then they then they were allowed to sing. So this young man came in and he was so prepared. He had his his music with yellow all down the strip of his music. His uh, trousers had this yellow stripe. His sneakers had a yellow stripe. He was there to impress, and um, he started to do his um, double pirouette quite badly. And then stopped and he said, uh, I'm not going to tap because my mother thinks it's common. Boo <laughs> <laughs> rattled off. And Bayok said, bring it back, bring it back. So he came back and uh, I said, what are you going to sing? And he said, I'm going to sing Once a Jolly Jumbuck. And Bayok said, what's that song? What's, what's that tune? I said, it's all right, it's right, Bayok. And of course, he sang Walter Matilda and, and it was the greatest audition ever. And uh, so he, he, got a, he got landed in, the, uh, in one of the roles, not as a lead role, but as a swing. Oh, right. Okay. And um, the audition cast, they come on, they're cut in the first sort of 15 minutes, aren't they? They are. Yeah, they yeah, are. Great. I know. It's a, it's a fabulous story. Fabulous show. <laughs> well, Mr. Casey, you were recently recognised for 40 years of service to musical theatre industry and named on the Queen's Birthday Honours List. Uh, how did that make you feel? That was just unbelievable. Uh, very honoured. Very privileged. And it always comes as a surprise. Um, and... You receive the letter. It, it, it comes the first time it comes in, and of course it's from Government House. And uh, the letter in the mail arrives. I said, Catherine, what's, what's... And I looked at it, and I opened up the back of it. You know what this is? I said, it's an event. We've got to do an event at Government House. <laughs> she said, all right. An invitation to perform. It's, it's right. I said, of course, we're about to open it up. And of course, it said these wonderful words that uh, you've been nominated. And Catherine knew, she, 18 months she held this secret. Oh, wow. She was uh, amazing. And uh, I've she's never held that secret for that, <laughs> that long. But she had it organized with referees and um, with her dear Brilliant. friends who nominated me. 
Fantastic. As well. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. It's a real honour. Now, you, 40 years of service to the music theatre industry, you've conducted a list of musicals that is so awe-inspiring from a variety of composers, styles, genres and nationalities. Les Mis, The Sound of Music, The King and I, The Producers, The Wizard of Oz, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chicago, Annie, I could go go on for the next hour. But is there a score that stands out for you? One that you could perhaps do again and again? Um, A score that's... When you do so many of them they were all, they end up being so great and every two or three years a, a winner would turn up and uh, uh, there are there are the greats like uh, Jekyll and Hyde and uh, magnificent pieces like uh, West Side Story and and all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein works but one that came up uh, which excited me so much mainly because of its genre and its sheer brilliance was Mel Brooks The Producers right which had that wonderful pastiche quality, didn't it? It did. It sort of referenced a whole canon of yeah, musical theatre. Yeah. It did. It was a great film, a very, very funny film, and a wonderful man. And I, I had the privilege of meeting him in San Francisco at, uh, at the theatres where I had to go and learn the show. And John Frost, our producer, as, as we all know, he sent, us, uh, sent me to San Francisco, and I met the stage manager at the door. I said, welcome, Mr. Casey, and they turned around, meet Mel. Straight away, I'm meeting Mel Brooks, um, and he said, "Hi, Peter." And he says, uh, "Please, uh, this is my wife Anne, and this is Anne Bancroft. I'm meeting." And uh, I'm, sh- this is to you, Mrs. Robinson. Absolutely, yeah. and this amazing actress, a great lady, shaking my hands. I felt like it was the the scene in West Side Story uh, when everything is in slow mo, right, yeah. nothing else existed, and uh, she made you feel as though you're the most important person in the world, and so uh, I met Mel, and unfortunately, uh, his wife passed away. But mm. uh, he did come to Australia with the producers, with the production, and only wanted to spend time with me. He only knew me. So I said, come and meet the producers, Mel. I'm not a producer. I said, come and meet our producers. And he was uh, so supportive and generous and uh, extremely talented man to sit down and write those great, fun songs. Mm. And the score was brilliantly orchestrated by uh, um, Doug Besterman and Ralph Burns. And that style of writing really doesn't exist anymore. But uh, every musician in, in Australia wanted to be on that show. We, um, we talked about, you know, what's your favourite show to conduct? But I guess that's a redundant question, really. It's like asking an actor, what's their favourite role? It's a tough one. Yeah, it's, it's a tough what one. What you're working on at the time, I guess. It, it is, it is. Um, I mean, the... I'm going to look at my list if I <laughs> Please can. Please do. <laughs> but the things like um, the Rogers and Hammerstein works are, um, they've left a legacy for all of us. Uh, King and I, The Sound of Music, there are two or three times I've conducted The Sound of Music. And um, King and I, a wonderful production as well. And, and South Pacific, did you do that? And South, South Pacific, Pacific with... I supervised that right. as well. Uh, but... Les Miserables in that earlier time, uh, which is, let me see, the first, the first production that Cameron McIntosh presented in Australia with the Theatre Royal with... Which had that phenomenal cast of Deborah Byrne and Philip Quast and yes. Anthony Warlow, yes. Normie Rowe. Absolutely. Peter Cousins, Simon Burke. Absolutely right. Marina <laughs> Pryor. <laughs> I don't great. want to leave anybody out. Your memory's great. You're <laughs> Sylvie Palladino. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's, uh, and I'm working with Marina very shortly and 
thoroughly modern Millie. So it would be great to work with her again. Yeah. And uh, But it was Les Miserables. But before that, should I say, is Cats was in 1985. That was the first Australian uh, production. And we just saw these two amazing eyes on bus stops throughout Sydney. No one knew what it was. And, and I got the biggest shot when John Robertson, the executive producer, and James Thane uh, both said, oh, we've sold uh, nearly 200,000 uh, tickets. I said, I said, that's terrible. I said, we haven't even started rehearsal yet. What happened? What happens if something goes wrong? <laughs> but of course, I got to know that you've got to sell the, the tickets. The advance. In advance. Uh, mm. But Cats was uh, an amazing start, followed by Les Rab working with the great Trevor Nunn twice. So not only with uh, Cats, but um, Trevor Nunn, the amazing um, RSC theatre director, uh, who spoke very softly to all actors and performers and musicians and he was originally a school teacher but a great wonderful director and he'd say now you see if you start the essence of that that you might not and of course I'm, I'm getting my score and I'm getting closer and closer so I can hear this wonderful knowledge about uh, T.S. Eliot for Cats and then of course the story of um, Les Miserables uh, because he famously wrote some of the lyrics for memory, I think. He did yeah. so. Mm. You're so correct. Mm. Yes, he did. And uh, and that was, a, that was a fabulous time working on that with Deborah. Uh, he gave us all the pictures and the images. And this day, I, whenever I see a production of Les Rabbi, I can only see those performers and then those texts and those notes and their music uh, in my eyes and mind whenever I see it. Um, it's a great work. And it changed the musical theatre industry in Australia in 1987 to the way that we um, play them, the way that we audition them, the, the quality. Uh, it created a benchmark of where it should be. A music theatre has figured prominently in your life, but do you have a favourite genre of music? Uh, genre, I like um, R&B a lot. Yeah. Yes, I, I listen to R&B when I need to clear my head of a particular phrase that's going over and over my brain. Like, um, and it could be, uh, say, one of the pieces from um, uh, Thoroughly Mod Millie, the, the number, which I'm working on at the moment before we start rehearsals. Uh, and I'll put on a nice little bit of Justin Timberlake or an earlier Michael Jackson, anything that that clears the brains. It's like a nice sorbet. You've got it. That's <laughs> <laughs> very well said. You know, rather than cheese and wine, it's better to stay on sorbet. Oh, very good, very good. <laughs> that's that's fascinating, R&B. So, um, no, Smokey Joe's Cafe, that was more rock, wasn't it? It was. The, it, um, that was and Lieber. That's right. Um, generally, yeah, I always keep saying Lieber and Stoller so I could remember them, but uh, they wrote nearly 300 hit tunes in those days and um, mostly all for Elvis Presley and uh, I sat with them in New York when I went to audition the uh, the leading ladies for our production and so they flew me over and I sat next to these amazing great uh, composers who were not concerned about any of the auditions just wondering where's the matzo balls who's got you could pass the sauce so the eating like all this stuff as uh, someone's coming in and singing their heart out these big amazing afro-american women who are pouring their hearts on a ballad and i'm in tears of just uh, amazement and i was i was also quite jet lagged at the time i remember but um, it was a great time and i was the only musical director with 
John Frost at the time that was able to play this five-piece work. And uh, the supervisor came out and he gave me he gave me structures on keeping the, my fingers close to the keyboard. Because normally one would lift your hands high uh, classically and get the runs correctly. He said, bring those hands down, Peter. And said, so it's get a plank of weight as well, I put guess. Put the weight it? so that you can stretch to a, a 10 span uh, octave, like, like, not octave, but 10 note. And, and it gave it wet weight to play the continuous rock. And the glissandas, my thumb was a mess after a while, but, but it was a, another great experience. So it was just fabulous to work on that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Warren, uh, Warren, New South Wales. It's about as far west as you'd really want to go in New South Wales. Right. Um, so almost to South Australia? Nearly heading yeah. that way, to um, past Dubbo and Parks and Winningen and Narrowman. So I, I was a country boy and uh, I, I, I was pretty much brought up in Mildura in, at was eight and nine and ten year old. So yeah. Warren and all of that area is born. I, don't remember very much but it was 10 years old when I started to play piano in Mildura so that was my city or town in in uh, in Australia that I do remember more of than anything else was it a musical household it was yeah. it was my uh, my dad is a master builder and he built a, a drum kit out of PVC plumbing and uh, he, he was a member of a, a rock band then uh, called the rhythm rockets Great name, isn't it? And uh, he he would be uh, they were, they loved Cold Joy and the Joy Boys, all those early oh. futures and sixties. Um, so I would, as a child, I remember just being on the carpet, playing, picking up a tambourine, a maraca, a castanet, anything I could get my hands on. Um, and my mother uh, sang violin songs very much in the the latter part of World War Two. So she sang a, a lot in um, in on the radio as well. And so she was, uh, she was a great inspiration to me and great encouragement throughout my life. So uh, out of my mom and dad, it with my, my father, uh, my mother would be uh, more, in, more encouragement than anyone else. And uh, she, was, she was very important to me and what I could do or whether I thought I could actually do that or could I possibly play that. Yeah. They were able to enjoy the success that you went on to become? They did, yes, very much so, yes. What was your music education like at school? My school, like, let me see, I, I ended up in Melbourne, I should say, because we left Mildura, I was a, in, private, in, uh, in public school in, in Mildura. So we arrived in Melbourne, and all through the high school, I never left the music room. I'd continually be playing piano, um, or, and I'd, do anything just to get out of sport. So I ended up playing um, piano at recess, the school accompanist, and I was also the school bell ringer for about three years. So, which got me out of a lot of things, you know. So but you'd have to be uh, aware of the time. Absolutely, I was a great timekeeper, great. I which has sort of come in handy, I guess, <laughs> later in life. With Mathematics is great, really, yeah. yes. And, but I'd leave five minutes before the class, uh, and the, the teachers would know, or they'd better hurry up with the homework. And I'd end up in the office with the ladies having a cup of tea and just turning the, the knob for the bell ringing. Uh, and uh, I'd play piano a lot. And I, anywhere I could go where there was a keyboard, I wanted to play. And So when did, when did piano come into your life? Pretty much um, in Mildura, my 
piano teacher when I was between eight and ten years old. Uh, his name was Frank Fagona. He also owned the um, Iceworks in Mildew. So that was his second uh, role. And he taught me through the John Thompson piano course. And uh, I started, I thought, oh, there has to be more to scales. There's got to be more than that. I'm driving my bonkers here, but at eight and ten years old. So I started to pick up jazz books and anything I could to learn new chords. And then I'd fiddle with them and I'd experiment. And then I ended up teaching my piano teacher more than he was teaching me. And all through my life, I've pretty much been self-taught uh, on piano and orchestration. Um, conducting, I've had few lessons with Maya Fredman and um, uh, dear Tommy Tico. Um, but pretty much my life has been a self-taught life. I never went to an institution at all. Do musicians need to be good mathematicians? Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I think they do. Um, because while you're playing, you're still configuring in your brain uh, where the third is, or who's playing the fifth, who's on the seventh note, where does the root note go? Oh, well, uh, oh, that's being played. I don't have to worry about that. I can play up to the seventh and eleventh. And it becomes a natural um, building block concept. Were you a part of bands or school orchestras during No, that I wasn't. Time? I was just a solo a, artist? Uh, mainly a solo artist, because mm. when I left school, I, uh, I started to sing quite a bit. And I was um, a performer in Melbourne. And uh, I used to do sessions. That's right. I did jingles. They called them in, in Melbourne for uh, Channel 7 and the ABC. And that was um, a huge, huge amount of work for us uh, each week. And my buddies were uh, all local. Brian Buggy was uh, um, a wonderful session singer at the time. And Olivia Newton-John was just starting out. And I was singing jingles with her in Melbourne and Pat Carroll. So um, I think that led me to coming to Sydney because I, I thought I did as much as I could, learned as much as I could in Melbourne at that time. I'm talking about 17, 18 and 19 years old. I then wanted to head to Sydney to um, to the big smoke to the big smoke as we say. <laughs> <laughs> so so you were very much self-taught. Your training has been on the job. Mm. There was no conservatorium course or no, anything like that. No, I know. I I felt I felt I needed it, but I, and, uh, now and again I would think, oh, well, I'll start working on a course. Or I'll study that. But the minute I, I would start to think about it or get onto it, I would be offered another show. I'd have to perform somewhere else. It was always. Fortunately, something there for me to to perform and to be on the job. Even as an MD in the clubs in those 70s and 80s, uh, throughout there were about 1,800 clubs that had um, orchestras and musicians. I would MD for so many artists. When I first came to Sydney, I was uh, Barry Crocker's musical director, Julie Anthony's music director, Maria Venuti, um, those are the I can think at the moment. But They're doing the clubs. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And you would read like a, a robot. It was just throw a piece of music in front of you. And, and it gave us, it gave us great uh, experience. So working as a pit singer in Melbourne, did you have a day job? Was that able to sustain you? Um, a pit singer, you, you meant like a jingle singer? A jingle singer. Jingle singer. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Uh, it did. It yeah. did. It sustained me. But, um, I, I actually did an apprenticeship, though. Um, when I left school because my father 
kept reminding me to uh, have a trade. I said, you can't depend on music, dear boy. And uh, so I remember that. Uh, and so I said, okay, Dad, I'll try. Um, I'll just look at the the book, the actual vocations book that school gives you, and I'll just open it anywhere. And there was chef, and I said, oh, great, I don't like cooking. I'll try that. So I studied that for nearly two years in Melbourne, and then I realized that hours from 3.30 through to 11 were the same hours that I wanted to be a musician or a performer. So that wasn't going to work. So I then opened the book again into a radio TV technician. I said, I like all those. So I ended up um, studying at RMIT and became a radio and TV technician. Uh, black and white televisions and radios and Hoover appliances. So to this very day, I'm still able to repair <laughs> the odd the odd iron or the odd washing machine, whatever it needs to be, be done. But there's not many cathode tubes around Absolutely anymore, right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Nothing like for, for the picture. Um, you also got into J.C. Williamson musicals, didn't you? You were mm. a performer for a while? Or? I was. I, I Is was. that the time when they had a singing chorus and a dancing chorus? And, That's correct. Yeah? That's yeah. correct. And I assume you were a singing chorus. That's right. I was part of the singing chorus uh, with The Wiz, which was an early black musical, um, and Irene, which is a, um, a 1920s uh, musical with Julie Anthony starring her. And I was on, on stage as a, uh, as a singer, primarily from the singer's chorus, but we had to do a little bit of movement, which, thank goodness, they put me in the back for that. Um, but that was the first uh, moment in Irene where uh, Noel Smith was conducting. Noel Smith was one of the earlier uh, conductors of J.C. Williamson's in the Australian Ballet, and uh, uh, he was one of my mentors. And I said to him one day, Noel, I said, I think you need, probably need a bit of a rest on the Wednesday matinee. This is, this is wearing you out. And he said, oh, OK, would you like to try that? So it was Wednesday, one Wednesday matinee. I went, I, I studied the score with Noel, but I left the stage, went to the orchestra pit, conducted the orchestra on that Wednesday matinee. And here's Julie Anthony and the, the company looking down at me while I'm up waving my arms like a mad person. And, and to that moment, that particular moment from then on, you knew that was the crossover. That was the time when I really knew where the rest of my life was going. I mean, I could actually bring all of that extraordinary um, emotive ideas from the, from the orchestra through me as a conduit to the stage and to the performers and then from me to them. So I became like a guide. What an extraordinary experience it that was. Was. It and, was. And so it generous was of, um, of Noel to, to offer that. It was, Peter, yes. Because that was the last days of J.C. Williamson's. They only had one or two musicals left. That's a great trivia question. What was the first musical Peter Casey conducted? <laughs> Irene. There you go. There you go. Um, but that offers you quite a unique position as an MD also, in that you've seen both sides of the footlights. Yes. yes. You understand... Yes the performers who you're guiding through a show, what they're going through because you've done it yourself. Exactly right. And I wish everybody could do that. Um, I mean, the great producers of the world uh, are usually uh, stage managers or performers before they become producers. And I think that's the best, the best experience. You have that appreciation of what goes on you do. in other departments. Yes. So what was the first commercial musical you got to conduct on your own? 
on no. my own was actually one of the last productions of J.C. Williamson's. Before J.C. Williamson's theatres uh, disbanded, uh, they were running out of money, and uh, their final production was uh, Man of La Mancha with Charles West and Suzanne Steele. And I was given that. That was my chance. Uh, Noel, Noel Smith was going and doing something else, and Dale Ringland, who was another conductor. And I ended up, Dale and I were the last two conductors before... J.C. Williamson's uh, uh, completed their their enormous tenure, um, and Man of La Mancha was the piece, um, and we were upstage in a well, and the, the design of uh, this particular Man of La Mancha production, and I had a huge potentiometer, uh, that that is a huge, big, round uh, generating device that would about the size of my hand, I would turn down to dim the lights of the orchestra manually and then bring them back up so when we had to play. So I, I would actually manually dim the lights down uh, when, we, when there was dialogue. Yes, a potentiometer. That's a wonderful old Isn't term. Right. Yes, have heard that before? <laughs> it's, a, it's a particular audio technician term when you on a radio or anything that has a round knob that you turn, it's a, a potentiometer. It uh, Turns up the volume or turns down the volume, it decreases or increases. Yeah, right. yeah. A pot, whatever. Um, yes, it was um, Man of La Mancha, a wonderful musical, very, very intricate in its uh, rhythms. Do you have a ritual that you go through before each performance? You talk about doing the rounds, mm. but is there anything else you do to prepare for before that evening's performance? performance? Yeah. Um, well, it's not, it's not really, it's just being there doing the warm up with the company. Um, sometimes, um, most of the time, I'll take that. Being there for that hour call beforehand, uh, and as you're saying, doing the rounds and just really uh, meeting and greeting as many people as I could that I was going to work with that night, just to see how they are. So I knew where their um, where their emotions were going on the day, whether they had a bad day or a good day or what was going on and and then I would know that if they may or may not be struggling with that long note at the end and I would connect with them organically um, and other than that just doing stretching and warm up as you would as a conductor because there's a lot of furious arm waving well, a, a conductor's prone to any sort of injury I mean RSI and all that yeah, sort of thing How I do you I maintain your body well I did in funny enough when you mentioned that it was in cats when I didn't have the technique really clear in my hand I ended up with an RSI on my right forearm and I and I thought I'm not going to be able to work or conduct like this so I I went to see a, an acupuncturist um people didn't know what they were in like the early 80s and uh, this extraordinary Chinese man who didn't speak English put needles everywhere and in six weeks cured the RSI I've never had any problems with arms or back since that that time but it it really much um, that, that, that causes that causes the event I, I think also the back if you've got to watch you've got to really make sure you have the Alexander technique in process of as though that the, string uh, going, the string through, going through you and keep, yep. as though you were a puppet. Keep light and keep off your feet and work your thighs. Always time that your thighs need to be strong. And it's pretty much like any workspace. Just make sure you exercise and warm up like any dancer or any company member. Yeah. Mm. You've covered a, a vast array of performance genres as well as musical theatre. 
arena presentations, symphonic concerts. What are the different considerations for those? Mm. Uh, the symphony concerts were extraordinary. My first, uh, if I may mention that one first, yep. is that a first time was uh, with the Western Australian Symphony Orchestra. And uh, I was working with Sylvie, Sylvie Palladino and, and Catherine and I both put that production together. And she was the guest artist and the orchestra manager at that time was a friend and said, why don't we do um, a, a Pops concert? And it was one of their first ever. And it was 60s, 70s, 80s music at the time. And I thought this is going to be great. And so I know the music, I know the style, I can orchestrate the whole works, the medleys for the orchestra. Get into the first rehearsal and I'm a little nervous and they're a little nervous of me. We don't know each other. And it's an enormous big room. And uh, and after their warm up and tuning, and that tuning moment is a very uh, sacred time. And you just wait for that moment to finish till everybody feels happy with their tuning. I'll get up onto the podium. The first piece was, uh, um, it was real, I can't remember it now. It could have been some big medley of a Beatles medley or whatever it may be, but I had the whole orchestra, Tutti, written for the first day, being in a big, big note. I'm about to start, and I view to the concertmaster, and everybody's ready, hands up. And as I lift my arms up to hit the first downbeat, the force of 90 men and women on the first note just about blew me off the podium. <laughs> and I realize now why they've got a railing around the podiums for the, yeah. in those days for the conductors, because it just gets too much. It's like <laughs> this big, enormous sound that happens on the first downbeat. And once I got that over with, they laughed and I laughed. We then broke the ice, you might as well say. Yeah. And that was, that was something I learned about knowing how to work with that many men and women who you don't, you've never met before. You've got a short period of time to build mm. immense trust mm. Um, mm. between them. You can. And you just speak the knowledge of what you want to say. They tell you what they think. And I always give men and women that time in an orchestra to, to say something and rather than be dictatorial, which is uh, it really doesn't work. And, uh, you've got to collaborate. You? you do. Mm. You do. And you really are a guide. And uh, you're guiding the work. You're the... the the compass of the ship. What about those arena spectaculars? You know, you did that one with Farnham Morlow and Olivia Newton-John. Oh, yes, yes, the main and event. Did you do Greece? Yes, I also days? did Greece, the arena spectacular as um, well. Mm. Happy Days, that was a, an arena spectacular. It was, too. I didn't do that you one. You didn't do that one, but, no. but they're huge events in a, in a vast entertainment centre or, mm. or coliseum. How do you ensure that everybody is receiving the same amount of sound or the, sure. the sound that they should be. Sure, that they would of course. Get in the theater. It, um, it comes down to a couple of items, um, which goes back to that size of orchestra. When you do work with a very large orchestra, you really only are working with the first two players of each section or the, or the leaders. And you communicate with those leads. You can't spread your energy to the everybody else to the back row. So you're working with the leaders of the unit and they in turn will actually guide their section to play stronger or, or in less volume, what it may be. But um, when I had a, a, a nearly 35-piece orchestra in the main event uh, for Anthony and John Farnham never had, uh, never had a, a band or an orchestra that big working with him. And Olivia, 
uh, didn't do concerts at all at that particular time. Uh, it was the first time she she had the chance to uh, to perform with that size of orchestra or that size of spectacular or 15,000 people each night. It was quite daunting for her. So uh, in the first rehearsal, which was at the Newcastle Entertainment Centre, I think that's where we had the whole production rehearsed up, and I had the uh, orchestra set up for rehearsals with John and Anthony and Olivia to walk on stage for the opening number. And I started playing, and as usual, I leave the orchestra and get up to the 10th, 12th or 14th row to hear what the sound is like. And all I could hear was uh, the bass and drums of John's band. This is going on. <laughs> What's going happening here? And so I picked up what we call is a, a God mic. Uh, it's the mic that um, we have when you want the whole arena and everybody backstage to hear what you want to say. And I would stand, and I said, "Stop, everybody, stop!" I said, "There are 35 men and women who are playing their hearts out over there, and all I can hear is thumper, thumper, thumper." said let's fix that turn the band off let's bring up the strings and I started to invite the sound department invite artists invite everybody you know to listen to a string section listen to what the woodwinds are playing this is what the harp is doing the brass the trumpets and it became a learning curve for the sound technicians who then taught others throughout the years uh, of that it is not only about the bass thumper in an arena so once that was set, I then lifted the whole uh, uh, levels of every other 35 men and women so they could be heard through the arena. Yeah. Well, that's where your sound technician exactly. experience My expertise really came, came off came yeah, It was. It's very, very true. I, I embraced the sound, audio, uh, anything, anything regarding audio. One of the very few music directors at that time who did that. What sorts of things can go wrong during performance? <laughs> Well, um, a conductor can lose his baton. That's for one. That's something. Oh, I, really? Yeah, yes. I did. Uh, I suppose your your hands might get a little bit sweaty, bit sweaty or with nerves or, and heat and. Yeah, or you're just trying to enforce a particular level of power, and you use your hands. This is this is not working. So you your so hands you just, powering. You scared the drummer. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't do that. It was in a production of Les Rab to point of view, and I'm doing this. I'm not that the baton flew out of my hands hurtling behind me to uh, about, I suppose, the 10th or 15th row, and I just went white while still conducting, thinking, oh, who have I stabbed? Oh, my God, what's going to go on? And so the show's still still going on. And, and it's and a long show. It is, and we're still <laughs> playing. And I'm hearing the audience behind me, the two or three 10 rows, because you can hear behind what the reactions are like. They became very quiet. And, da -da -da -da, and we're still playing and conducting, and then... All of a sudden, I've got this tap on the shoulder. The no. audience passed the baton no. all the way down <laughs> through to me, came to my hands, realizing that the show wasn't going to be able to go on unless I had a baton in my hands. That is brilliant. It's an amazing story. Um, if you're a footballer, they would have taken the football as a souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were good. No, I was more concerned about stabbing someone, but they were more concerned about me what a very thoughtful audience they, they were <laughs> do you read uh, the reviews of your shows i don't think anybody can't stop themselves from reading a review uh, I, I tried um but uh i, end, I ended up uh, pretty much after the 20th or 30th musical to realize that uh, 
just it's someone really who wants to be in the show themselves and uh, and they're just having a hard time if they're giving a bad critique um i'd sort of rather wait for what other people tell me about the show people you trust and yeah and take their opinion yeah, yeah. You've also composed and orchestrated several musical productions, operas and recordings in Singapore and Korea. Is there a thriving music theatre industry in Asia? There is, very yeah. much so. In, in Seoul especially, because I, I keep... Uh, let me see, it's nearly, nearly 20 years that I flew back and forth to, uh, to Korea. And I helped them um, develop their musical theatre industry um, in early 90s, I think it was, pretty much late 80s, 90s. How did that association begin? It, it was with a, uh, a touring production of Cats that I went over with, and the co-promoter in that time, Michael Chung, um, he had a, a, a classical a classical promotion company, and he had a, a very big management company in Korea, and I was able to meet him, and we talked, and he said, I want to do some Western uh, works here, and I said, well, what do you want to do? I said, JC Superstar. So I flew back and helped present Jesus Christ Superstar in the Western style that it is and uh, injected a lot of uh, our style in the Western style of music. And um, from then on, uh, it's been about five, six musicals uh, so far in Korea. I was able to inject uh, the, the Western style um, musical theater orchestrations ideas uh, to their local composers and they've won uh, quite a few awards in that way as well and uh, one of them was um, The Last Empress which is still running to this very day, A Hero uh, another extraordinary um, musical that uh, is this year has had its 10th anniversary <laughs> You just orchestrated, I believe, a production of Hamlet the musical? Yes, I did, yeah. So what's the process involved in orchestrating? It's a, it's a it's about that um, they're an unseen they're an unseen a sound an unseen person they the orchestrator you will always remember and know the composer for their work and the orchestrator generally spends more time with the composer developing uh, what what they think is the the, the highlights of that particular melody of the show. You spoke earlier about Mel Brooks uh, yes, composing yeah. the producers. Yes. So he would probably just bash out a melody You're and right. then it's yeah. the orchestrator that fleshes that out. And, and he didn't even bash out the melody. He'd right. close the lid of the piano and, and put the tape recorder on hum it. Yeah. Climb on a knee, a producer. <laughs> and the orchestrator would put that into chords, write the whole 
orchestration. Like uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's orchestrator, David Cullen, he would um, he wrote that beginning like it's in memory uh, and and uh, all of the jelly ball ideas they all come from the orchestrators and and in singing in the rain from an orchestrator all of the intros are motives most of the time that the orchestrator have written for what the about, composer. What about scene changes? Uh, Same again, the orchestra, the orchestra writer, yeah. based on the melodies that the composer has uh, initially put together, and they'll they might they'll write variations on a theme, and that's what I did most of the time is write dance orchestrations and scene changes, and uh, gave uh, Hamlet. They called it Hamlet Alive, and uh, I'm quite sure why they had to do that. Probably because there was a, a Hamlet that was presented two years previous but it did very well and uh, I, I had a great time over there. You must have to have a, a pretty good knowledge of every instrument in the orchestra. You do, yeah. you do, yes. Um, it's pretty impossible to tell someone what they're doing incorrectly if you don't know what they're doing in the first place. Do you play any other instruments other than piano? I started off in piano, uh, tried a little on the clarinet, guitar, I, re I realized a guitar was uh, going to ruin uh, and the fingertips for when you play piano but uh, I studied pretty much every other instrument and and talked to musicians and work with them and listened and analyzed and fortunately enough being able to analyze so many things in my life um, gave me great stead in orchestration you obviously like to write music yourself I do I, I love composing and uh, you don't get very much of a chance to make money as a composer in this country so um, I've fortunately been lucky with orchestrating more than anything but, but I do love composing and uh, I have a few, um, few compositions here and there and even The Last Empress and the Korean works I would, or I would compose half of those melodies. Um, so. Are you considering another language as you write that? You're just writing a melody really and then it's up to the lyricist to... Mm, mm. You're, you're um, creating a vision for the book. Um, I believe the book actually created the vision in the first place, the book or the screenplay. And from that, you your imagination takes you into the next vision for someone to hear what has been written. I marvel at someone like, uh, I think, Herbert Kretzmer, the, the yes, lyricist Herbie. on, um, on Les Mis, because right. that was written in French, of course, That's with right. Schomburg and Bobille, and then he had to trance translate that language you're into right a, Peter you're English. absolutely right very few people know of that that's, that's a huge task it is it is and he had to liaise with the Frenchman who um, and uh, Claude Michel could never really play piano very well hopefully he doesn't listen to this but he was uh, he would end up in audition days and head to the piano to remind everybody that he was the composer of the play and start to play master of the house and to look at that very badly on the piano, and so we just used to say, oh, thank you. Gloria. Well, I don't think Irving Berlin was a great pianist either. No, no, it's so. right, yeah. it's right. Um, so emptying all of those shows, <coughs> what has that taught you about writing for the theatre? If you were able to be, pick up any sort of you, you do. ins uh, about... Uh, <clears throat> I think so, because you're, um, your scores that are given to you from Broadway will have all of the scene change written, and you'd study and analyse all of those, and then you get a, a knowledge, an inner knowledge of, of when more music is needed or less 
music's needed for that or this and that. So I, I had, uh, I was fortunate enough to have those years under my belt to be able to write scene changes within that melodies for the Koreans or for any other Australian production. You've uh, also written for film, a film called Typhoon. Oh yes, that's right, the yeah. um, Korean. How, how is that different when <clears throat> you're scoring for film? Um, the um, composer, the, um, uh, let me see, Hyung Suk Kim, Hyung Suk, came with uh, his melodies and an idea of an orchestration on his uh, computer for it. And uh, I said, we will need to actually expand on this. I said, your the visions of Typhoon, which was based, uh, of course, in a, a love triangle in a, a, a Korean war. And uh, the, there were a lot of big storm scenes and action scenes and battle scenes. And I said, that melody and that orchestration has to be expanded in our visions and in our ears to do that. So really, one would just write um, for the dramatic use of that melody, whatever dramatically he would say, and then, of course, sound-wise and the textures of the orchestration where it should build up and make that bigger than Quo Vadis or bigger than Ben-Hur. And so um, it's a different process in film. They, they work 5.1, which are five speakers in difference of one, two, three, four, five surround and one in the center. So it's a different um, audio, a different sound process. Um, it's a fuller sound, it's isn't a it? Bigger, really? It's a bigger, fuller sound. Bigger orchestra, I suppose, mm -hmm. sort of recording it. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. You've done something like, uh, I think, <coughs> seven Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. Right, have you counted them? Have yeah, I went through your oh. very long list. Oh, thank you. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> but working with a, a particular composer so often, um, that must teach you a bit. It does. It you you um, get to know Andrew's works. So <coughs> Excuse me. The, the, so then, when you do come up against uh, another work in the repertoire, you are for prepared, aren't you? Lord? You are. Yes. Um, Andrew's uh, writing is very simplistic in its origin. If you would take away the the chords or anything, you just play that single melody. He's very much in touch with uh, um, the 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 musical motive of the time, whichever may be Cats or Tessie Superstar. And I was lucky enough to to work with Andrew before he became Lord, Lord Andrew. And uh, it was in Hong Kong and he was, was a very shy man. And uh, I said, Andrew, come on, we have to introduce, meet the orchestra uh, in Hong Kong, all Chinese players. I said, they'd love to meet you. So, oh, no, 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 come, come on. And so he was very nervous and wanting to meet the people. And I brought him up onto the podium and, um, and explained to who this man was and how magnificent he was. And, and he pretty much couldn't say only maybe a few words, thank you very much, I'm glad you like my work, and then that, and left. And so a lot of composers, when they're subjected to someone criticizing or maybe being subjected to their work, find it uh, an invasion of their emotive uh, on their emotions and so I understand that and uh, because they feel that they're being judged straight away mm -hmm. um, but he then got to realize through his years that people are judging him now in, in the mag most magnificent light you know it's, it's a great body of work he has written yeah well Lloyd Webber you've worked um, the music the scores of Sondheim Kander and Ebb Rodgers and Hammerstein do you have a favorite composer or, mm. or writing team it, it would have to be Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, 
I don't know whether everybody says this or not. But, but they're they, the pioneers, aren't they? Of they were. Those, those men uh, worked to a regime. They would get up. Their, their wives would take them down to the cottage at the end of their estate. Uh, and they would start at nine o'clock and work together, break for lunch and have lunch. Work all the afternoon till about five or six o'clock. So it was a, a work time and a commitment to the process. Now I'm just saying that's the discipline to approaching their work, but they were able to read as many many books and the novels as they could, and and relay together as a lyricist and a composer, and be in simpatico that same thought. And um, they they gave great melodies and great. And the lyrics of oh. Hammerstein are extraordinary. And although there's a formula to all of the shows, mm. they are able to write in really particular worlds, whether it be the world of, of uh, Carnies and, and in Carousel or yes. Midwest in Oklahoma or... Yes, yes, um, that's true. The South I mean, Pacific War. The South Pacific, and, and uh, like Oklahoma, Poor Judd is Dead mm. is an, an extraordinary um, piece of writing. Uh, you've got to be carefully taught from South Pacific. These are... Uh, are understatements or uh, that were created by these men at the time when they were going through racial issues or or social injustices and they wrote music in the particular musical hidden but to actually give a statement that you don't you we, we don't want to take this money we can't take racial ideas uh, you have to be carefully taught what you say be careful what you say to your children. All of these stories and and proverbs and um, well, you look at South Pacific, uh, South Pacific, sorry, a sound of music. Yes, people look at that as a, a fluffy sort of nothing, but oh, it is right. quite a dramatic, oh, powerful statement about it what is. was happening in the world at the time. Absolutely, mm. yes, it has everything. <coughs> excuse me, it has the, um, I mean, the the German story in it, um, the naivety of uh, novice nuns. Um, what parenting. happens to her? Parenting, mm. uh, children saying too much too soon in even in those earlier years, and there were subtexts everywhere. We had um, we had, one of the Sound of Music productions um, I did was Lorraine Bailey was cast in the role as uh, as the housekeeper, and uh, she is a great great artist, a great star, and on our opening night. Unfortunately, she fell, uh, pulling a, a piece of set away, and she fell and, and uh, fell on her ankle. And the butler came in and saved the show on the afternoon. The butler walked in and he said, "Oh, drinking again?" She said, "Oh no, let's save the moment." We all laughed with it, but carried her off. But she did the rest of that performance with a broken ankle. Wow. And uh, this is Lorraine. And but everyone used the story. The tragedy, the drama, the love interludes of that sound of music to, and used to use those issues when they did the performance. So in no way was it ever a, a, a frothy musical as such. Uh, I mean, children would love the show, of course, but there was a deep and meaningful story under the sound of music. Mm. I've got one last question for you. Do you have a favourite sound in the orchestra? The harp. The harp, yeah. Mm. What is it about the harp? The harp, it uh, starts, it has, it covers the whole compass of the orchestra. The compass of the piano comp uh, covers right from the bottom end to the top end. So every particular emotive line when the harp glissando is played 
it will cover every frequency from 432 for 440 hertz to 452 all of those particular frequencies that we affect us it happens within the harp and uh, the glissandos lift you you'll get goosebumps you will actually play chords uh, and everything about it actually gives me goosebumps and I know when a glissando is about to happen with the orchestra I still to this day I have to I have to breathe in yeah. And when it happens, uh, I'm, on, I'm in seventh heaven. Am I right in suggesting that the harp is the heart of the piano? It is, sort of, yes. Yeah, there's a harp within that. That's correct, yeah. that's correct, or correct. What's based on it? It's a based on that, on those frequencies, but instead of steel frame, it's a, a wooden frame. And, and if you're ever uh, lucky enough to see all those earlier Marx Brothers films, you'll probably remember Harpo Marx trashing a, a grand piano and inside just happened to be a harp. So. <laughs> Peter Casey is the musical director for Thoroughly Modern Millie, presented by the production company at the Arts Centre Melbourne from August 3rd to 11. The musical interlude played in the episode was the song To Be or Not To Be from the Korean musical Hamlet, orchestrated by Peter Casey and performed by brilliant young Korean artist Hong Kwang Ho, who played the title role. This has been another exciting episode of Stages. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening.